You know, the so Academy Awards are, are coming up, and you have, I think you have, you've been nominated 20 times for Academy Awards. <laughs> and I was wondering if, if you mind playing a little game show. In 60 seconds, how many of those 20 movies for which you were nominated for an Academy Award can you name? And if you're able to name them, I will give you this bonus Oscar. Okay. Put 60 seconds on the clock. Begin. What? Start. Start naming movies. There's um, an Oscar on the line. The, the French Lieutenant's Woman? Correct. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Yes. Uh, Silkwood? Yes. Uh, Sophie's Choice? Yes. Uh, oh, God. No, oh that God. was George Burns. <laughs> See, I can't remember last Thursday. I can remember the olden days. That one wasn't in there either. Okay. Out of Africa? Oh, uh, yes. Um, um, uh, cry, cry in the Dark, maybe? No. Why? Why? <laughs> Why was I not? You were wrong. <laughs> you forgot the first one. You remember the first one? No. You don't? Uh, yes. They say you always forget your first one, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the first nomination? Yeah. I thought that was the French Lieutenant's Woman. No, it wasn't. That was the third. I'm gonna have to keep this Oscar for myself, but <laughs> that's okay. You probably have oh, enough. Oh, <laughs> damn. Hello there, all you winos, you Aussies, you Nepo babies. Is it Nepo? Nepo? I don't know. Anyway, welcome to Sproonly Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. And I'm Spro, and our destiny is to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Today's episode is the third in our least popular <laughs> series, but I'm a completionist. Lee's a stubborn bastard, so we're finishing what we started and going streeping once again. It's all true. It's all true. Today is part three of our ongoing series, The Streep Effect, where we chronologically examine each of Queen Meryl's Oscar nominations to determine whether or not her performance was worthy of the nominative honor. And it's also true that these episodes are by a wide margin our most unpopular. I can only assume it's because, you know, we're talking about old movies, in a lot of cases, unknown movies to, to even you and I. And we're also talking about a bit of a divisive actress in Meryl. Uh, would you say she's divisive? I would say for the most part, she's revered in such Revelry is why people didn't tune in for us streep shitting. Okay, well, fine. Maybe divisive is is too strong of a word. Give me a fucking break. I'm <laughs> trying to create some intrigue here. Christ's sake. I mean, I know Ooh. I know people who love her, and I know people who despise her. I guess that doesn't make her divisive. Maybe polarizing. Is that better? Sure. Sure. Okay. Anyway, that leads me to another point, which we already made in season three when we started this, but I'm going to make it again here in season four. Spro and I 
don't have an axe to grind with Miss Streep for her performances, her political beliefs, her anything. Our beef is, as always, with the Academy, who repeatedly nominate tentpole Hollywood names like Streep and many others to sell their brand. Because unfortunately, the average asshole doesn't tune into the Oscars to see a bunch of no-names or up-and-comers win awards. And it's easier for them to build off of products the public already knows. Absolutely right. And so far, we have taken away two nominations out of her first six. So two away, she keeps four. We're not complete bastards here. And really, can someone disagree that Joan Crawford deserved it over the French lieutenant's woman? Where Glenn Close's comedy role in Maxine over Out of Africa, and ultimately what we decided in that episode was that Woody Goldberg over Geraldine Page. Did you say Woody Goldberg? <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg over Geraldine Whoopi Page. Carlson. <laughs> I knew it's what a you good argument. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's probably not a bunch of people out there that would disagree with what we said. And I think we're right. I think, and I think we're being fair. And you know what's the most important bit? I think we're being honest. And honestly, I think we're not done. We're definitely not done. So let's pick up where we left off in the year of our, yeah, 1988. This year, Meryl was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for her portrayal of Helen Archer from the film Ironweed, directed by Hector Babenko. Oh, forgive me. Forgive me for our sin. If you must call them sins, you know, I call them decisions, so. I, I'm not a drunk and I'm not a whore and I never let a man use me for money. You know, I went Dutch lots of times and I, well, I would let them buy the drinks, but that's because it's a man's place to buy the drinks. And I never, ever betrayed anybody and that's what counts with me and if you tuned into season three's season finale finale which was our interview with Aliyah kanani we talked about poverty porn and so did most of the critics who shat on this movie but i was pleasantly surprised by this one Sure, it's sad, which some critics didn't like. And sure, it's dirty, which other critics thought was some kind of vilification of poor people. But it was a pleasant watch of two actors who I greatly miss, a young Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Throw in some Tom Waits and I had a lovely evening cooking some dinner with my kitchen TV on and taking this. And as we sit here and question the Academy's motives and scrutinize Ms. Streep's performances, and I do... And I did. I couldn't find a false beat or a reason to take this one away. Meryl plays Helen in a movie set in 1938 where almost everyone in the film is homeless and just trying to survive. It's based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book of the same name by William Kennedy. Ironweed truly is a bleak love film between Jack Nicholson's Francis, who is an alcoholic, and Meryl, who plays a terminally ill homeless woman who has to give <laughs> gross-ass men handjobs for the warmth of their pickup cabs at night. Now, is this poverty porn? Is it possible to produce a movie about homeless people without feeling like poverty porn? I don't know. It's a world I don't know, but I am highly interested in it. You know, living in Los Angeles, we have a lot of our listeners are from the California area. In particular, in Los Angeles, you see the homeless everywhere. And as human beings, you either, you either have to ignore it or be utterly distracted by it. And I'm the latter. It fascinates me. And I don't know what that says about me. An underground culture of people who live outside of our homes, but yet know a whole different world than we do. So perhaps I like poverty porn. I don't know. But much 
like I like the religious porn of The Exorcist, or maybe I just like porn. Who knows? Yeah, it seems like anything exploitative is equated to porn these days. But let's focus on Meryl. Let's stop talking about my porn. (laughs) To me, Meryl's performance in this, she is inspiring and she is heartbreaking. She has this fantasy sequence in a bar that will lift you up and at the same time, it will break your heart. So the woman with the soft skin of Kramer v. Kramer, the aristocrat of Out of Africa, the shy lady from The Deer Hunter. To me, this is her performance where she really goes balls to the wall. And I think it should be applauded. Awarded? No, but nominated, I'm fine with this. Okay. I'm fine letting this nomination through the gate. Streep is good. I think she actually gets better as the film progresses. When she's wandering the streets muttering to herself, that was really well done. But I I will disagree about the film. I didn't care for it. Ironwood's good at being sad, but it's mostly forgettable and frequently boring. Streep and Waits, I thought, were the most engaging parts of it. For me, seeing Jack Nicholson again, I was like... I'm here for this. I had my love affair with Nicholson after I saw Cuckoo's Nest in seventh grade and watched a lot of his films. Yeah, I don't know. I thought the opening, the, the first sequence where you really, like, they, they didn't take any time peeling back his character and him crying in front of the grave, like, eight minutes into the movie, I was like, whoa, whoa, build up to it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I forget which actor said it, but, you know, the easiest emotion to portray on camera is anger. And his most convincing scene is when he's drunk and loses his shit on Meryl in the the middle of the street. Even in a boring film, there's things that are going to stick. Like the one thing that's going to always stick with me is the drunk woman outside that they couldn't find shelter for. And so then they go in and they come out and the dogs are eating her, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. just like. Gah, disturbing. All right. So she keeps that nomination, which takes us to the very next year when she was nominated for an Australian film called A Cry in the Dark. It's referred to in Australia as Evil Angels. The premise of this of this movie is probably familiar to a listener or two or even three. It tells the true story of Michael and Lindy Chamberlain, the Australian couple whose nine-week-old infant was stolen out of an open tent and eaten by a dingo. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. <laughs> Go ate your baby. It also deals with the aftermath of that when they believe that the Chamberlains are telling the truth, and then slowly, as intrigue builds among the Australian people and the international community, frankly, that was a huge story. Charges are eventually brought up against both Lindy and Michael, and Lindy ended up being incarcerated for three years. Anyway, I appreciated the script for this movie. I'm not going to say it's a good script because Sproul want to know if I read it, which I didn't, but I did jump online for a little research. And I found that the script relates the actual events fairly accurately. And I like stories that explore and expose biases, how given the right circumstances, an innocent person's life can just be fucking shattered by public perception. And I think Street plays Lindy with poise and resilience. And as the pressure gets ratcheted up on her and her husband, Lindy's resolve really only grows while Michael kind of falls apart. Because of the prominence of maternity, this role was reminiscent for me of Street in Kramer versus Kramer and Sophie's Choice. But unlike those roles, Lindy is a resolute and unwavering character. Technically speaking, the film isn't anything special. Occasionally, it, it really kind of looks and feels like a TV movie. But Streep is terrific and deserved her nomination. She lost this year to Jodie Foster for The Accused, a film which actually has some things in common with A Cry in the Dark. Yeah, and I don't even hate that loss to Jodie Foster in The Accused. Um, Seinfeld ruined this movie. <laughs> Yeah, there were so many. There were so many jokes. Even like you talking about it, like I was like, maybe the dingo ate your baby. 
it's funny until you watch this movie and you're like, oh, shit. And then you really genuinely start imagining like the way they talk about how dingoes feed, Mm -hmm. like they peel the skin off. I was like, oh, my God. Like if you really sit and think about it, it is not funny at all. (laughs) No. The biggest thing that I was taken away from this movie, even like the first time that I saw it way back in the day, was that it struck a chord in me with the parents that we do vilify that lose their children. And then the media circus that surrounds it. Like when I was first watching A Cry in the Dark, I was scrutinizing Meryl Streep's accent. I feel like that's one of the things we have to do as we go through these roles that because a lot of these nominated roles, it seems that she is playing some form of a foreign accent. And I have to say, she is maybe the best vocally trained actress that is working today, maybe even working ever, considering the fact that she is nailing all these that we go through. And I know I gave her kind of shit about like, it felt like with Out of Africa, the words were being lost around her tongue. But with this one, I think she encapsulated the Australian dialect amazingly well. And the other thing about this Lindy performance is Lindy wasn't particularly likable or smart. But the way that Streep portrays her, you feel for her and you feel like you would maybe make the same mistakes that she is as she is going along for this horrible ride. You told us yesterday, did you not, Mrs. Chamberlain, that when you saw the dingo shaking its head, it was halfway through the fly screen. It was on the move through the fly screen. Do you know there was no blood found on the fly screen, do you? I presume there hasn't been because it hasn't been mentioned. Do you say this dog had its head half through the fly screen, shaking a bleeding baby? As I said again and again yesterday, it was emerging through the fly screen. Shaking its head vigorously? I couldn't tell you now whether it was shaking its head as it was going through, while it was through, or before it was through, its obvious movement was sh- shaking the fly screen at some stage. It was all a matter of from what? the time I first saw it to the time it was in the back of the tent. It was a matter of a few seconds, very, very fast and moving. And what it had in its mouth, we now know, according to you, was a bleeding baby. Well, that's my opinion. Pardon? That is my opinion. Well, is there any doubt about it? Not in my mind. I I disagree that she's not smart. I just think she's a different kind of smart. Her husband's this erudite preacher who's going back to school and back to school and back to... I mean, homeboy finished his life. He died of leukemia, I think, in 2013, 2014. And he think he had six degrees under his belt by that point. Lindy's intelligence comes with her strength. I mean, you, you could look at the way in which she is so blunt as, you know, an intellectual failing. But I don't know. I kind of like that or the way in which she's very forceful and well, blunt. Different kinds of intelligence, right? Like books smart, street smarts, people smart. Really what I was just trying to get to, like she was cranky. She was upset. She was unpleasant with the media and their relentless witch hunt. Her bluntness, yes appreciated sometimes, but then you kind of go like, is that the best move with the cameras on you? No, but that's also why I liked it. Cause she was like, fuck you. <laughs> I like this one. I don't want to touch this one. Yeah. Yeah. Let's leave it. Okay. Well then we're going to skip forward a couple years to 1991 and talk about Streep's next nominated role from Postcards from the Edge. This is a movie based on Carrie Fisher's semi-autobiographical novel of the same name. 
where Streep plays Suzanne Vale, and Shirley MacLaine plays her passive-aggressive mother, Doris, which these two characters are basically stand-ins for Fisher herself and her mother, Debbie Reynolds. So the film opens with Suzanne overdosing, and then the rest of the film is uh, her attempts to not only overcome her drug addiction, but salvage what's left of her acting career, and all the while find some kind of peace while deflecting her mother's interferences. I I can tell you right now, I don't think Street deserves an Oscar nomination for Postcards. This movie encapsulates everything that you and I are trying to say with the Street Effect series. This is our thesis. It's the quintessential case of the Academy nominating a name instead of a performance. Is Streep not good in it? No, she's perfectly fine. But that's our point. Perfectly fine doesn't deserve an Oscar nomination. It's an honor just to be nominated, as they say, and as you said, Spro, and that honor probably should have gone to somebody else. That, and I talked about how movies about Hollywood and actors and actresses playing actors and actresses needs to be scrutinized more than usual. And as a simple viewing, Meryl is fine, as fine as she is in a number of her other non-nominated roles. But if you hold this to the microscope of absolutely raw perfection of Hollywood emulating itself, does it hold up? I would say absolutely not. Is Meryl good? Yes. But even by this point of her very successful career, can Meryl pull off playing a B-movie actress? I would, I would actually say less so. To put it another way, her acting in Postcards from the Edge is as good as her acting in, say, She-Devil, Death Becomes Her heartburn. There has to be, fucking has to be something better than this this year. I think she's a little better in this than she was in some of those other I think Death Becomes Her is a way better role. If we were talking about Death Becomes Her, a nomination for that, I would be fine. That's a great comedic role. That's her best comedic role. She's got another comedic role coming up. We could stop here. Yeah, let's stop here, which is strange because once again, we went one, two, two, three. (laughs) We're not planning this, guys. We're not like, okay... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we get into any of that, Spro has an Oscar fun fact for everyone brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick me up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor 2022. We take our coffee seriously. We're passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a mobile cafe and coffee retailer from Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise you a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. When they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon sticks. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to OddDogCoffee.com, where you can choose from three original roasts, cardamom and clove spike, the good boy blend of just the beans, and finally, my favorite, cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. And if you're in the Cleveland area, check out their online menu at OddDogCoffee.com and visit them at the Walter Stinson Community Park in University Heights, Ohio. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication. Comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies we watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. 
As we gather here today to talk about whether or not Meryl Streep deserves all of her nominations, I looked into when the Oscars officially revoked their own nominations. Looks like we're not the only bastards in the game, Lee, because the Oscars have revoked nominations on eight separate occasions. During the very first Academy Awards in 1929, Charlie Chaplin was nominated for four of the biggest categories for his film, The Circus, Best Actor, Best Writer, Best Director for Comedy, and Best Picture. There was a common fear amongst the Academy members and film press at the time that Chaplin was going to sweep all nominated categories. So the voting body made an odd decision. They re- they rescinded all standing nominations for Chaplin and his film and instead gave him an honorary award that recognized all the accomplishments of his film while not taking away the spotlight from other potential winners. Some speculate that this was also done because of Chaplin's unpopularity in Hollywood at the time. Chaplin was unpopular, if you remember, which you probably don't because it was 1929, (laughs) but he was going through a bitter divorce with his first wife who publicly accused him of infidelity, abuse, and of harboring, quote, perverted sexual desires, end quote. And of course, our puritanical history led people to ask for his films to be banned. So that's number one. Number two, John Wayne starred in the 1954 Western Hondo, which saw its own bit of controversy at the Oscars that year. While originally nominated for Best Story, the early Oscars version of Best Screenplay, the nomination was eventually rescinded for one simple reason. It wasn't an inherently original work. Apparently, the script was based on a short story called The Gift of Cochise, and therefore could not be considered in the category of Best Story. The guidelines at the time prohibited derivative works and adaptations, so Hondo could not be recognized in that category. Number three, the 1956 musical comedy High Society, which I really like as a film starring Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly, was recognized at the 29th Academy Awards in three different categories. There was Best Song, Best Score, and Best Story. Unfortunately, the Academy had made a mistake on that last nomination because the film was originally based on the 1940 film The Philadelphia Story, starring our girl Katherine Hepburn, thus rendering it ineligible to be nominated in that particular category. Number four, The Godfather. The composer for the film, Nino Rota, was originally nominated for Best Score, but his nomination would later be revoked after a discovery was made. It turns out that Rota used some of the music from an earlier work of his, the score for an Italian comedy called Fortunella, and the score for The Godfather, which rendered him ineligible to receive a nomination for Best Narrative Score. But a few years later, however, Rota would receive an Oscar for his work on The Godfather Part Two. Number five, originally submitted by Uruguay as their submission for Best Foreign Language Feature, A Place in the World was nominated alongside four other international films. Eventually, it came to light that the film was most produced in Argentina, with the Uruguay production company having very little sway over what happened with the film. For those reasons, its nomination was revoked. Number six, originally nominated in the category of Best Live Action Short, Tuba Atlantic was Norwegian's production about an old man who only has six days left to live. It was notable enough to to receive recognition at the 2011 Oscars. But there was an issue that later arose. It turns out that the film had premiered on Norwegian television before it had ever screened in theaters, which goes against the Academy's distribution rules. Those fucking rules. For those reasons, that film's nomination was revoked. Then, in 2014, nominated for Best Original Song, the Christian film Alone, Yet Not Alone, is reminiscent of last year's campaign of To Leslie. Two weeks after Alone, Yet Not Alone received its nomination, the Academy decided to rescind its consideration for the film. 
and its song. When later asked about it, the Academy said that the reason for its change of heart was because the composer of the film sent out some of the 239 members of the voting body, reminding them that his film was up for consideration. While not seemingly wrong so far, one must consider the fact that this composer, Bruce Broden, was an executive member of the Academy's music branch and a former governor of the organization. The Academy saw this as a gross use of power and influence and removed the nomination from Alone Yet Not Alone, which gross abuse of power is kind of what we did back in season one when we took away the uh, Academy Award from Harvey Weinstein's Shakespeare in Love and gave it to The Truman Show because as we all know, Harvey Weinstein was a gross man who grossly abused his power. So it's just sprawly take on the Academy, taking on the Academy with its own fire. So the most recent nomination revoked was for the Michael Bay directed Benghazi drama, 13 Hours, which was originally nominated in the best sound mixing category. But one day before the ceremony, however, the Academy decided to rescind their consideration for the film for one very simple reason. One of the sound designers committed acts of, quote, telephone lobbying, end quote, in order to garner a nomination. This goes against Academy rules about influencing voting members. So his nomination was removed from consideration. Remember, the Academy Awards only likes it if you spend money to lobby for your consideration. They don't like it if it's on the cheap, like just calling people up, cold calling, like you're from Glengarry Glen Ross. But the interesting thing is that there were four sound designers, four sound engineers on this movie. Only his nomination was revoked. The other three sound engineers were kept on as nominees. But in the end, it didn't matter because 13 Hours ended up losing the award to the Mel Gibson film Hacksaw Ridge. So there you go. There are eight other nominations that were revoked, and we're not the only assholes in the world. Not that we thought we were. So why don't we start with some of the better known films and leading ladies, and then we'll slowly get into the more obscure. What do you say? How about this? So like we have, we talked about this. We have a a spreadsheet, right? With everything that we find along the way of things that we can talk about. Maybe the Golden Globes nominated them, maybe SAG, maybe other obscure award shows. There are websites out there that say these are the best performances that usually line up with the award shows. New York film critics, LA film critics, Chicago film critics. Or like the film festivals, like Sundance. And then we put together the list and then we, we watch them all. There are some on here that we don't have to talk very long about because we are not going to entertain the idea that they were better than (laughs) Miss Streep in Postcards from an Edge. But they were on other critics' lists. We can point some good things out or just say avoid the films altogether. Okay. I'm going to let you take this first one, which is Andy McDowell as Bronte Parrish in Green Card. Fun fact behind the scenes, Lee and I don't always get along. So when it came to Andy McDowell, she was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. And Lee was like, I can tell you right now, we do not have to watch this movie. And I was like... Well, if I took your opinion, I would be no better than the Academy voters out there right now who are taking their friends' opinions and not watching everything out there that they possibly could to Ooh. put something on the award stage, right? Which was, which was a good response. So I watched Green Card, and you know what? It was fun. And I also agree with Lee. Andy McDowell does not need to be talked about in this episode. But Green Card, fun movie. If you have a significant other that enjoys rom-com, the romantic comedy, this one is it's it's a pleasant watch maybe something to put on 
I think she could make a pretty good comeback. She still looks great. She's 64 years old. I don't know why she's not in shit anymore. What would you say is your favorite Andy McDowell film? Here's the problem. Or rather, sorry, your favorite Andy McDowell performance. How's that? Here's the exact same problem. (laughs) Okay. They're all the same. Like, I wouldn't say that her performance in Green Card is anything different than Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is nothing different than, like, Multiplicity. If we're going to talk about my favorite movie that I've seen Andy McDowell in, Multiplicity makes me chuckle for the wrongest reasons. (laughs) But that that would be my pick. You would do Multiplicity over Groundhog Day? I would. Wow. Look, there have been three movies where I felt like I might laugh myself out of my chair in the theater. First one is Dumb and Dumber. The second one was Multiplicity. And the third one was Super Bad. Hmm. I don't know what it is, but Michael Keaton playing all four of those roles was just the funniest shit I've ever seen. <laughs> I was very disappointed with Multiplicity and I was super excited about it. Two I'm very disappointed own. in that opinion. I know. Um, I figured you would be. <laughs> The next one that we can talk about, but we also argued about behind the scenes was Catherine O'Hara as Kate, or as many people know her, Kevin's mother in Home Alone. And we argued about this because you're like, I think that she would be up for best supporting actress. And we have discussed on the show how there's like no real reason why sometimes you are nominated for best actress versus best supporting actress. So many examples of what some people refer to as category fraud. And you're right. It was another good argument. So case in point, the most recent example was Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Like she probably has about as much screen time as Catherine O'Hara does. I would say less even. Yeah, probably. Look, I love Catherine O'Hara. I think she plays this with a plum. I can find no fault in this. Is it something that we can seriously entertain? No, but we could talk about it. I'm all for comedic performances getting a nod. And she is sincere and realistic in dealing with Kevin and her own emotions and feelings towards her son. But then she also has moments of just absolute hilarity. What's the matter? Honey? I have a terrible feeling. About what? That we didn't do something. Ah, now you feel that way because we left in such a hurry. We took care of everything. Believe me, we did. Did I turn off the coffee? No. I did. Did you lock up? Yeah. Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage. That's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! I I would agree with you. There's, I mean, everybody would agree with you. If you find somebody that, if you can find somebody that doesn't like Catherine O'Hara, show them to me. Because I don't, I don't think that they exist. Ever since I saw Beetlejuice, I was like, this woman is a treasure. I would put her up there with Madeline Kahn. But I don't know if it's worthy of a nomination. The thing that's lacking for me here is range. She doesn't play a whole lot of emotions. She is believable in everything that she does, so much so that I think one of the biggest disappointments in Home Alone 2 was the writing of her character because she went from this realistic mother trying to get home to her son. And in Home Alone 2, she was almost kind of flippant, like it's happening again and everything. And I was like, this isn't the character that I knew from the first one. I would be completely on board if we were talking about her performance in Beetlejuice. If this was that year, 
I would be completely <laughs> on board, but we're not. So let's move on. Next on the list, Mia Farrow as Alice in Woody Allen's Alice. I'm interested in your thoughts on this because you already know my thoughts. This movie was boring as shit. The... There are certain directors that could bring out like the best performances from their actors. I was thinking Paul Thomas Anderson. I was thinking Martin Scorsese. Woody Allen seems to want his actors to play different versions of himself. And so now I don't understand why anybody would want to be necessarily in a Woody Allen flick if they're going to play these boring characterizations. I'm completely with you. The first time I noticed it was Melinda and Melinda. And at that point, I'd really only seen Woody Allen films in which he was the lead. And and like Will Ferrell just proceeded to do a Woody Allen impersonation. And I was like, God, that's terrible. He's doing a Woody Allen. If this is, But then Midnight in Paris, I saw that one. Same deal. And yeah, across the board, it's tiresome. And I will say Mia Farrow did better than Owen Wilson and Will Ferrell of hiding the Woody-isms in her acting. Like you couldn't see it as much. And the other thing is, is I really, when I saw Mia Farrow on our list, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to probably go with her because I really, I like watching her in Rosemary's Baby. I really liked her in the Purple Rose of Cairo. So I was like, oh, maybe this is the time that we could give Mia Farrow her comeuppance. And this movie just dragged ass for me. I can't do it to my husband. All this talk last night of Mother Teresa just made me feel so guilty. I believe in fidelity. It's my upbringing. I'm not going to commit adultery. I, I just can't do it. And who is this guy, anyway? You know, some horn player? A divorcee? He's, he's a complete stranger. I've been married 16 years, Dr. Yang. I'm, I can't just go out and commit adultery. Not that I'm so sure he even wants me. You know, I'm getting older. And what, what, what would happen if I fell in love with him? This is... I'm just so mixed up. And her performance didn't do any, like when she was on screen, it wasn't anything like, she wasn't like stealing my attention. I was like, can we just get on with this? I am <laughs> completely with you. I mean, we could sit here and trash the movie for a while, but it's just, it's nothing special. It's just Woody Allen era, Mia Farrow being Mia Farrow and in her Woody Allen era. And I wasn't impressed. Next on the list, Michelle Pfeiffer as Katya <laughs> in the Russia house. I think it's Pfeiffer. This movie is so ambitious in its script and its editing, and it's so not engaging at all. Oh, <laughs> I, was, I hate you. I was really like the first 20 minutes, I was like, okay, cool. I'm actually digging the way this is playing out. And then the further it got in, I was like, oh my God, get to the fucking point. And Michelle Pfeiffer was pretty good. I thought her Russian accent was good. Her role is pointless. Other than to show us a salt of the earth Russian woman with strong values who eventually gives in to Sean Connery's advances. <laughs> and I was so in and out of this movie. You disagree? Yes. Well, I studied John le Carre movies in college. It was like our tier three class was espionage and folklore. And the one thing that I loved about the studies and everything is this is spy. Like I'm a huge James Bond fan, but James Bond, any spy CIA movie that we do, Mission Impossible or anything like that, they are so much action heavy and action oriented that it makes you think like being in the CIA and the NSA is like the most thrilling job in the world. And then 
John Le Carre, who was an intelligence officer, writes these movies and writes books and and shows you that the world is espionage is really just a whole lot of talking. Another, which, which one, I, I love that. That's great, and it doesn't translate very well to film. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I mean, it could get a little tedious. Like everything is almost in code in this movie. I was super intrigued by it. I really liked it. Once again, kind of like seeing Jack Nicholson in Ironweed. I really like watching Sean Connery. But yeah, like I enjoy The Russia House much more than I enjoyed Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is another one of John Lacare's films. But I will agree. I will actually disagree with you with the Michelle Pfeiffer Russian accent. I think it was acceptable, but it was also pretty standard across the board with what broken English that she had. I had two Russian students in two different UCLA courses, and the things that they stumbled on, the words that they mispronounced were all kind of different at different times. And Michelle Pfeiffer's Russian accent kind of just, you know, it was like one level. She got to English 401, and <laughs> this is where she sits. And so to me, this performance was Michelle Pfeiffer with a Russian accent. And it's like, I wanted more. You remember 68, the Paris students at the barricades, the American students against Vietnam. And for us, it was Czechoslovakia. Yago said that the Russians would never stop the extraordinary reforms happening there. It was the start of a new age. He had come back to Leningrad to be a part of it. From where? from the military. They had seduced him with privileges, money for his researches. Uh, they had corrupted him. He had come back to Leningrad to recover his innocence. Uh, he was beautiful. Not like a scientist, like a artist. So you fell in love with him? He was my first lover. But you're also right. Like, what good was her role? None. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. It, it served no purpose. She was the catalyst for the entire story because of the manuscript that she brings. But after that, I was like expecting like, OK, so she's going to flip on him. Uh, I thought there, there was going to be some like, yeah, I, I could tell from Jump that it wasn't going to be action heavy, which I'm fine with. But it wasn't intriguing. And I mean, Sean Connery just, you could tell he really sunk his teeth into this fucking playboy author role. I'm sure John LeCarre really appreciated the fact that Sean Connery played him, but. Uh. <laughs> this was actually one of my favorite watches. So, listener, take note. Like, maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't. It's free. I mean, it's free everywhere. Damn near. All right. All right. So, those ones, I would say, those roles, those performances. I think the only one that I really said like, hey, check out if you have a fan of rom-com is Andy McDowell and Green Card. And if you haven't seen Home Alone by now, uh, something's wrong with it. Next on our list then, as we get into the, the more well-knowns, there are a couple within here that I think are also randoms. But these are the ones you're saying are the, the higher quality. So what we've been doing with season three more so than we have in the past is – 
putting together top three lists, I would say I have none in what we have discussed previously. Well, the first place my mind went was Meg Ryan and Joe versus the Volcano. I'll admit that I have a distinct love for this movie. It's brought me a lot of joy over the past 30 plus years. Meg plays three different characters in this film. And there's no real reason that she plays these three characters other than Banks is a recurring line. You know, the first time I met you, I swear I'd met you somewhere before. I I like to look at them all as different shades of the same person. And there's a lot of similarities between those three characters if you really really sit there and look at it. I'd be happy to give the nomination to her, (laughs) but I know that you would not. Funny enough, I remember starting this movie as a kid and I remember finishing this movie as a kid. I don't remember the entire second act or ever having seen it. Obviously, as a child, I kind of just phased out. And as an adult, I was like, let me, oh, wow, I don't remember parts of this movie at all. And then I also phased out. So I'm glad you have a really great affinity for this movie. To me, it's a good first act and a great third act and a forgettable second act. And so then when we're talking about Meg Ryan's performance, I will say this, the third iteration of Meg Ryan in this movie is perfection. The minute she shows up on screen, it is a completely different movie and a whole lot more enjoyable. even slept with him or anything and now you're gonna kill yourself can you give us a minute you love me yes i love you i can feel my heart i feel like i'm going crazy you just can't die and leave me here on the stinking earth without you i've got to do it why why the chief doesn't even want you to do it do you chief because I have wasted my entire life and I'm going to die. Now I have a chance to die like a man and I'm going to take it. I've got to take it. I love you. I love you too. I've never been in love with anybody before either. It's great. I am glad. <laughs> but the timing stinks. I got to go. Her first role is of Didi, where she is, I would say, good. And Angelica, for me, is <laughs> just downright awful. If she only played Patricia, I would entertain in this idea. But the fact that she's over-inducing character for Angelica doesn't put her very high on my list. I think she's funny. She breaks a little bit with her character when they're sitting in the car. Um, yes. Yeah, she kind of lets the character fade and, and Meg comes in and it, you can tell, oh, there's Meg Ryan. I don't, wouldn't even know how to delineate this film into acts. Obviously, I can tell what the first act is and I can tell what the third act is. But the middle act is... Uh, Just not those two. <laughs> I get. I guess. Yeah. I guess by by subtraction. But it, it does. It, it, it moves so quickly. Once Meg Ryan shows up on the dock, this movie is. It deserves all of the good feels that you get while revisiting it. When they're on the luggage floating like that, to me, that is iconic. You know. And totally. I think rewatching it, I was like, Jesus Christ! I think my belief that God is in the movie. So. When I I go to Ocean City, New Jersey every single year, I walk on the beach at least once at night. And for whatever reason, I said, I don't know if I believe in God or a higher power or anything like that. But if I do, for whatever reason, I think I could talk directly to them by the moon over the ocean of Ocean City. I really feel like I got that whole fucking feeling from Joe versus the volcano. And when he talks to God with the moon rising and everything, how stupid is that? (laughs) I, I, I don't think it's stupid. 
I think I like the theme of facing your fears in this film because it's it, they don't cram it down your – well, I guess somebody could look at it and go, oh, they, they cram it down your throat. I don't feel like they cram it down your throat. I feel like it's very softly delivered. And can we just talk about how many great bit characters there are? You've got Lloyd Bridges, Dan Hedaya, Abe Vigoda, Nathan Lane, Ossie Davis as the limo driver. Yep. It's just what a great cast that Shanley got together for his directorial debut. And so many memorable parts. Like I knew, you know, with the arm and like slapping Dan Hedaya in the forehead and everything. Like, Don't touch that, Joe. <laughs> I'd be happy to give her the nomination. I can tell you're resistant, so let's move forward. Demi Moore as Molly in the blockbuster Ghost. Do you realize that this movie was made on a $22.5 million budget, and which I imagine most went to the actor's salaries and special effects, but it grossed over half a billion dollars? And it's funny to think that nowadays they could make it for even cheaper, make the effects look even better, but it probably wouldn't make a dime. Channing Tatum owns the rights to this movie and is hoping to remake it with him playing Patrick Swayze's role. And it I think Channing Tatum has lost his goddamn mind. I would love if he remade it if he cast Zoe Kravitz. I think that would bring a, quite a bit of emotional weight to it. But yeah, I don't think it needs to be remade, but who am I? I've watched Ghost countless times. I mean, it was constantly on HBO in the early 90s, and I probably watched most of the times it was on. So it was a crazy experience to revisit this one because I don't think I have watched it since the 20th century. And I cried a couple different times. And every time I cried, it was because Demi Moore was on, was on screen. Her crying is so good, but she's really not good other than that. <laughs> I would say that the scenes where she's with Whoopi are only engaging when Whoopi argues with the non-existent Patrick Swayze. <laughs> Demi is so flat. And I think she was just trying to play a grieving widow and, you know, someone who is full of anger and angst and sadness. And maybe that's what the role called for. I just, I would still say this is probably the best Demi ever was. Definitely better than G.I. Jane. Uh, I love G.I. Jane. That was such a gimmicky ass movie. But anyway, um, not good enough for the for the nomination for my part anyway. You might hate what I'm about to say or you might not because you kind of referenced it as well. But the most iconic tier in movie history is what? Denzel Washington in Glory. Correct. The single tier that Denzel is known for in Glory. But I would say the second would be the tears that fall out of Demi Moore's eyes at the end of Ghost. And they resonate the same way for me. Oh, yeah. I had not revisited this movie since I was a teenager. And it was weird to see what I remembered and what I didn't. Everything Tony Goldwyn did for his character was lost on me as a kid. Like them in the elevator, him and Patrick Swayze in the elevator playing off each other. I, I forgot completely about and I enjoyed thoroughly. And then I was like, wait a minute, this asshole is going to be an asshole at some point in this movie. You know what I picked up on that I didn't pick up on the, when I was a kid? What's that? What movie or what play did they go see? Um, the night that Sam recall. is murdered. I don't recall. Oh my God. You're a writer. You dipshit. Macbeth. Uh-huh. Okay. Why is that? Who cares? <laughs> because Macbeth was friends with... Duncan, the king. Oh, and okay. Kills him. Don't, I don't think up. about don't that look kind of on shit. Me because you didn't notice that. <laughs> well, there you go, listeners. I hope you fucking love Lee for that little. 
<laughs> but one um, or two of them, maybe. You're right. I would say this is probably, if not her best role, it's definitely in her top three. She does do the crying so well. She does the tomboyish, strong female very well. I mean, it starts with them all breaking down the wall. She's hanging with the boys. I mean, obviously, she's got a. Do we call that a boy haircut? That's probably not what we call it nowadays. It's pretty chic back then, though, to have that pixie cut. Pixie cut. Good. And then, you know, even like the parts where she is sitting with Tony Goldwyn and he is trying to make the moves on her and everything. And she is unsure, but in the same instance, mourning and lonely and everything. She plays this distant stare so well. I can't fault her for not being able to command the screen when Whoopi Goldberg is on it because Whoopi Goldberg is amazing in this movie. But the way that she looks at and the way that she plays off of Patrick Swayze, goddamn, like I cannot tell that she is not 100% in love with the man that she is looking at. So sure, this sure. one is actually pretty high on my list. Oh, so. okay. I'm going to marry you, Sam. What? What? Yeah. I've been thinking about it. I'm thinking about it a lot. And I think we should just do it. You're serious? Yeah. What's that look for? You never wanted to talk about it. Sam. What do you think? Why don't you ever say it? What do you mean, why don't I ever say it? I say it all the time. I feel no, like... No, you don't. You say ditto, and that's not the same. People say I love you all the time, and it doesn't mean anything. Sometimes you need to hear it. Yeah, I mean, talking it out now, it's she's far more vibrant. She has the joie de vivre. But then starting with the moment where he's killed, she can't do panic stricken in that moment very well. And if she's playing muted, I, I get it. But I don't know that she was a gifted enough actress at the time or her director wasn't pushing her hard enough or whatever it was. Can we it's also not, point out the fact that this is a horribly directed movie? Um, I guess we could point that out. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I didn't feel that it was horribly directed. What What about it is horribly directed in your opinion? I don't like the. To me, like the just the visualization, the camera angles. It seemed like he was lost with whether or not he was doing a drama or a comedy. The tone of everything just kind of felt off. Where I feel like the acting and the actors and the script saved it from the director. Hmm. At least that's, that's the feeling I got while watching it. I was like, huh. I, I, like, then- I like the fact that that it, it it's got to be balanced comedy and and sadness. That didn't bother me. I just felt as though in the hands of a more gifted actress, I think you could have pulled more out of this role. But instead, yeah, Demi Moore, she kind of just was like, okay, so I'm a widow. So I need to be distant, as you said, or muted, as I said. And she kind of just rests on that. There's not much else happening for me. But all right, high on your list. eh? Interesting. All right. Next is... We might as well just do these as a two-pack. Jennifer Jason Lee was in two movies this year, and two movies that I know of. She may very well have been in, in more movies this year, but the two movies that we're going to talk about are Miami Blues and Last Exit to Brooklyn, and she plays a prostitute in both of them. Let's start with Miami Blues, Susie Wagoner. This movie 
is so weird and uneven. <laughs> it is. It felt like just such a mess. Baldwin was in a completely different movie. I, Fred Ward is so miscast, but I think he was pretty instrumental in getting this movie made. He was one of the producers. This movie's probably what led director George Armitage to direct Gross Point Blank. So I suppose I, I should take my mashed potatoes with a few lumps. But God, the dialogue is so bad. The performances don't connect. The actors are poorly matched. It's just a strange, strange movie. But I read one review that I, I'm inclined to agree with. It's the best bad movie I've seen in a while, but it's still a bad movie. Uh, that was expertly put, and I didn't write down who said it. When you look at the nominations for this year, there is another prostitute movie or a prostitute role that was nominated, which is Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. I am on record saying that Pretty Woman to me is one of those films that I could rewatch for the rest of my life. So it was, I was like, oh, here is Jennifer Jason Lee's version of a prostitute, which not her only one of the year. What do you think of her as Susie Wagner in this movie? Or what's her prostitute name? Is it Cinnamon Purple? She didn't do anything but show her breasts. Huh? I don't think, <laughs> to me, this is not, She. what range did she show? What emotion did she, she in this she, film? Um, Other okay. than sweet, naive girl who's getting taken advantage of by a weird ass Alec Baldwin. Maybe I'll get extra credit. Hey, where'd you get these? Dumb question. Are you a nosy Rosie? Mm-mm. What the hell was that, man? The doorbell. Talk about dumb questions. I think the part where she puts all the vinegar in the pie and then watches him eat and he lies and says it's delicious. I think it's dramatic the way it does that extreme close up on her and she like pounds her face into her hands like, oh my God, it's that's just bad direction, but... <laughs> She slowly gets wise to him and she doesn't want to get screwed over, despite the fact that she loves him and that she argues that there was good in him. She doesn't allow him to take advantage of her. And as crazy as this movie was, I, I do got to say, I, I've been thinking about it and it's mostly been Jennifer Jason Lee that I've been thinking about. Yeah, it's. I think it's the best performance in the film in a very, very odd film. Well, there we go. That's Miami Blues. So the next in the two pack is a film called Last Exit to Brooklyn based on a novel. Jennifer Jason Lee played a prostitute again, and her character's name was Tralala. And this movie is a very strange experience as well. This one didn't stick with me the way her performance oh, no. in Miami Blues stuck with me. I got like a Requiem for a Dream vibe. So this is set in Brooklyn during the 1950s against a backdrop of union, corruption, and violence. Just a whole lot of different stories ebbed and weaved together. But this is quick synopsis as a prostitute falls in love with one of her customers. Also, a disturbed man discovers that he is a homosexual. Now, getting into this, I was thinking that I was going to try and really make an argument for Alexis Arquette in this film. And then Alexis Arquette was killed halfway through. So I was like, oh, fuck, there goes that argument. Well, I mean, you could still make the argument. You're arguing in favor of Catherine O'Hara, or at least you wanted her mentioned. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about her. But I don't necessarily, you had a phrase for it that I really enjoyed, but I don't necessarily believe that if you are not the one with the most screen time or with the one with the most lines that you should be up for anything other than best supporting actress. Category fraud. Category fraud. That was it. 
It was weird to me, though, getting into all this that I was like, man, a lot of these nominations, a lot of these actresses, a lot of these roles that are talked about, the actresses had to be sexualized or nude. And this is one of them where she is, I mean, essentially, anybody could go out and watch the film who wants to. But in the end, she falls in love with a sailor who's about to be deployed. And she is so heart stricken on that, that she decides to bear her breasts in a packed bar, say the best breasts of the West and allow herself to be gang raped to death. To me, that is shocking and violent. And it leaves a worse taste in your mouth than anything that she did in Miami Blues. Yeah, it's it's violent. The the violence is very visceral too. Like just starting with them beating the living shit out of that that soldier at the beginning of the movie, like the makeup and on his face is I was like, whoa. I thought they would just do a little blood coming out of the lip and stuff, but his face is like mangled. But yeah, it's it's a very violent movie. Powerful possibly with the right set of eyes. I guess I might have been movied out when I watched this one because I kind of just was like, shoulders. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, it's definitely darker. And I would say that she just, I don't know, with the Miami Blues, I think it's easier to play naive and sweet in what she did there with this one. I mean, I don't know the woman personally, but this one, I mean, even the scene where, because they staged the sailors, right? She pretends like she's going to take them to the alley to give them a blowjob. And before she does, her assailants are supposed to jump out and bash the guy over the head and steal his wallet. But there was that one scene where they're like, nah, fuck it. Let's just see what she does. And she has to go through with it. Feels mouth raped, is mouth raped and then walks off and is pissed off at them for the rest of the thing. Like for me, everything that Jennifer does in this movie is much more of a reach than what she was giving in Miami Blues. Okay. I guess it's content wise. I still think you see, I think both of the characters have growth. I like the bittersweet resolution for Betty Wagner in Miami Blues a little bit more. Oh, I mean, Miami Blues was a much easier pill to swallow. All right. Let's move on from Jennifer Jason Lee to an actress with only two names, Helen Mirren, who plays Georgina in a film called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. (laughs) What the hell do you think you're doing? Telling a complete stranger intimate details about us. It's not about us. It's about me. It's about us! And what's all this? How much time you spend in that loo? And what's all this about a gynecologist? Who is he? It better be a she. I don't want some bloke fingering my wife about. It's a man. He's Jewish. And he's from Ethiopia. What? His mother is a Roman Catholic. He's been in prison in South Africa. He's as black as the ace of spades, and he probably drinks his own pee. Take it away. All right. It's funny, like, sometimes a title of a book or a movie can give you, like, a feeling. You know what I mean? Yes. Sometimes that feeling is way off, sometimes it isn't, but it's fun when an interesting title bears an interesting story as well. At first I wondered if I was watching a play that had been filmed when I turned this movie on. I slowly realized obviously I was wrong, unless the stage was as long as a football field, but I was almost immediately enthralled. Uh, Once they moved from the street into the restaurant, I was loving it. 
I liked almost everything about this movie. I think my biggest beef is it's the penultimate sequence where she meets with Borst the cook to discuss the climax, which I don't want to give away because I, I am recommending this movie highly. I think the film had already, had, by that point, done a pretty good job of connecting the dots between sex and food and, and thematically kind of leading us there. So I was kind of beginning to suspect that that was the direction it was going. You even hinted at it and I was like, okay. I felt like that penultimate scene really undermined the film's cleverness. And if you had shortened that scene or rewritten it or just cut it entirely, I don't think the final sequence would have lost any of its bravado. But speaking about Helen Mirren, she gives one of the most interesting performances of this year. She is evasive with who she is deep down, but she is completely open to giving herself sexually to a complete stranger. I love the way in which I see there's so much I want to say, but I can't because I don't want to spoil this movie. I, I just think she's fantastic. I think this has one of the most satisfying endings to a film that I've seen in a long time. I think the acting across the board is great. I think Helen Mirren is spectacular. I would love to know who else was up for this role. I can't believe they haven't remade this movie in America. It, it is the coolest role for a woman for this year. And Helen Mirren is wonderful. I like that. Do you want to know a critique of it, though, though that's going to just drive you batshit that, of course, I have it? I'll decide if it's going to drive me batshit, though. She doesn't inhale her cigarette. Drives me absolute fucking crazy. That doesn't bother me at all. Okay. I couldn't even tell. Like, I recognized Helen Mirren, but I didn't recognize who she was throughout pretty much probably 75% of the movie. I really love the long takes. I love the fact that the director let the actors play in their roles. To me, Tim Roth was a fucking treat to watch. The scene where he's, you know, drunk and sick on muscles that reminded me of his character from Four Rooms. But when it comes to Helen, she's literally and figuratively bare all on the screen. The way that she presents herself, the emotions behind every one of her actions makes you super curious to know what she is thinking and what she's going to do next. Yes, I love I love that because you're like, okay, this woman has a story. I obviously I'm seeing the way in which she's interacting with her husband played just wonderfully by Michael Gambone. I mean, he irritated me and then he cracked me up and then he <laughs> irritated me again. And then I hated him. Uh, just pages and pages of dialogue that man had to memorize because there's not a whole lot of cuts. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. like, or locations, like you have the dining room, you have the back of the house, which is like a fucking warehouse with a bunch of tables all over the place and, and separate rooms, I guess, that are cordoned off by drapes. And then you have the outside. Like, I like how you described it with, you know, if it was a stage, it would be a football length field because that's pretty much all that we are seeing. And I think that's obviously very deliberate. There, you know, there's a lot of talk about how it was based on uh, Baroque paintings, um, which I would never have been like, oh, that's clearly influenced by the broker. <laughs> I don't know shit about that. But it was purposely meant to feel like it was on a stage, especially when you're in the kitchen. I thought the, the the stage for the kitchen was one of my favorite stages I've ever seen. Feels like the ceilings are 30 feet high. It looks like you're you're actually backstage rather than in a kitchen. Just happens to be some kitchen equipment in there and the lighting is just so cool back there. Yeah, I want like it should be a play. They should try to put this on stage, I would feel. Mm-hmm. And they probably um, have. You were like, I wonder why this isn't talked about more, why this isn't more popular. This was rated NC-17 due to mm -hmm. 
whole lot of penis. Yeah, there's some there's some muff too. Some of the violence in this movie too is also I had to look away a couple not I didn't have to look away, but there were a couple times <laughs> where I was like, oh God. <laughs> And what is but strange- it's weird too, like the way that the director can bring about suspense with the wide shot. You know, usually you do the close-up angles of eyes and and lips and you know the sensory of it all. But like I just think about like the bathroom scenes with like the wide shot and who's yeah. coming in, where their eye line is, what they are seeing. You're right. It does a good job of of that operatic suspense, which Sergio Leone was wonderful at. I really liked this movie. Have you seen anything else that Peter Greenaway has done? No. Have you? No. (laughs) All right. Last on the list is uh, Susan Sarandon as Nora Baker in White Palace. And you heard me right. White Palace. Not White Castle. White Palace. That's probably the dumbest part of the whole movie was them. (laughs) (laughs) Spro alluded earlier to he and I having some differences of opinion and... uh, this was a piece of that puzzle. It's interesting what you said about Joe versus the Volcano, the first and third act being great and the middle act being trash. I would say I feel the exact same way about this movie, the inverse. I think the first and third act, uh, the third act is terrible. What an awful ending, Uh, just awful. I think the first act is incredibly contrived. I think the characters are cut from construction paper, but it's the second act that I really enjoyed where you get to actually get to know Susan Sarandon's character, who is the only interesting character in this entire movie. I thought she did a very nice job in the middle, starting with the part where he gives, because they do that. I sent you the I sent you the <laughs> link to the YouTube video for, I was like, this might be the greatest montage song ever. The movie is about a widower who has kind of closed himself off from the world. His best friend, played by Jason Alexander, who's he's getting married. After a few drinks, they are like, oh, you got to get back out there. And uh, just by happenstance, he happens to run into Susan Sarandon, a character that he's always already run into earlier. And, and he runs into her and they end up having a brief tryst, but something draws him back to her. And they begin a torrid love affair, and they waste no time in the movie getting right to a montage so that we know, hey, it's been a couple weeks. They've been fucking and hanging out. (laughs) And the song that plays over it is magical. It is a fourth-rate Reba (laughs) McIntyre singing a song called, what's it called? Younger (sighs) men are starting to look good to me. But all criticism aside, I did like the middle and she is good and you're right. And I think it's a great role at a time when there probably weren't a lot of very good roles for women. But yeah, the ending, whatever you probably think happens at the end of this movie fucking happens. And it's completely not in keeping with how good the second act is. So I was I was pretty bummed about that. That's all I got to say. She was definitely better than I was giving her credit for in the beginning. In the beginning, when she's drunk, she was irritating the living hell out of me. Really? Yes. I mean, I can agree with you. Like, it seemed like she was a little too forceful, a little too coming on too strong. And I will also agree with you that the third act is the weakest act of the entire thing. 
I will disagree that she is the, I think you said the only quality part. I really also enjoyed Eileen Brennan's Judy, her older sister. Mrs. Peacock. Yep. The characterization that she was giving, I was like, I don't know how to read this woman. Like it really seemed like she was coming on strong to James Bader as well as if it's like, oh, you're into older women, then I'm going to bang you too. Yeah, I was worried about that. I was worried about that. So the film is about, I don't know if you explained it great, but it's pretty much a romantic comedy about can a 20 year old man and a 40 year old woman accept each other for their age difference and then also have their family accept the age difference as well. I think it's very much about the class difference. Money and no money. I don't know what's happening to me. I have never wanted a woman as much as I wanted you. Never, not even my wife. You better be careful with words like that. Words like that could kill a person if you don't mean it. Well, I mean it. That you love me more than you do your wife? I didn't say that. I said I wanted you more than my wife. What's the difference? I don't know. I don't know. I only know that when I'm not with you, I'm a total wreck. And when you are with me? I'm a different kind of total wreck. Why did you lie to me? Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding? Not recently. Well, it wouldn't have been that easy. I wanted to save us a cross-examination. Bullshit. You were embarrassed to take me there. No, Nora, that's not true. I want you to know there's nothing I hate more than being lied to. I'd rather have a man beat me up than lie to me. At least then you stand a chance of defending yourself. You, You know, every time we have a date and you show up on time, I'm so damn grateful it's downright sickening. Because I don't expect you to show up at all. But you do. And every time I do, I just can't believe it. And I'm so damn happy. Because, because I'm thinking maybe you're gonna stick around a while. And I'm believing in you. Because you told me the first time that I met you that you didn't gobble and you didn't lie. Well, I don't give a shit if you gobble, but don't you ever lie to me again. Because I'll forgive you once, but I won't forgive you twice. I think the age difference takes a complete and total backseat as the story evolves. And it becomes about her not living up to his, which is why in the end he quits his job. He goes back to being a teacher, which I don't know if Eileen Brennan predicts that or she does perpetuates well does does she predict that or does she put that idea in his head well susan sarandon's nora baker has one of those like you know it's like leo dicaprio's the beauty is in the struggles titanic speech you know like whatever we're all going to be here at the bottom and happy and and whatnot when she is talking at the table but what i really like about susan sarandon in this role is that she is a waitress at a white palace and she is playing 40. Like she's not a glammed up 40. She is a very real version of what this woman would be. And in the same instance, through her performance, how she delivers her lines, obviously the sexual nature. I'm not a huge fan of Susan Sarandon, but in the same instance, as I'm watching this, I'm like slightly attracted to her based off of how she is delivering this performance. Yeah, I thought I thought she was quite beautiful. You know what I felt about this movie in the middle? I felt I was happy to be wrong because I was very judgy about this one. And you could tell that Sarandon gave a shit about this role. You could tell there was something in this that resonated with her. You were right behind the scenes. This is very comparable to what she played in Bull Durham. 
And it started out with me being like, I would rather see her in Bull Durham. And by the end, I was like, this is a way more interesting character, so much more nuanced and just great dialogue for her. Spader basically is kind of just like following her lead in every scene. And it's, it's pretty great. So two things. The one thing I want to get back to is my favorite line from the film is when they're all going to Thanksgiving together and she is in the passenger seat and he's bringing his mother out to the car. She's like, who's that? He's like, that's my friend. Shut no, the fuck she doesn't up. say who's that. She says, what's that? <laughs> what a bitch. Yeah. And he says, so, you be nice to her or I'll kick the shit out of you is what he says. <laughs> I actually really liked the part where he kept being like, you Okay. We doing okay? And she's like, yeah. He's like, are you sure? And she's like, stop asking me if okay. <laughs> and I just, yeah, all those scenes in, I mean, they shouldn't have ended up together in the end. It should have been, I would have respected the film so much more if it would have been him, you know, resuming his life with his friends in a bittersweet fashion and her hopefully finding someone more attuned with who she is. Well, I think like in the end, like what I really like about it is for decades, we heard about how there was no role for older women, you know, like once you hit 40, like they all go by the wayside. And I think this is a great role. Oh, look over here. Got a cute little old runner to the right. Blue shorts, no shirt. Whew, you're looking good, darling. That's right. Stay in shape. You want to do our top three? I'm now I'm struggling. I have a top four. <laughs> oh my god! All right, we'll do your number four because I don't have a four. Fourth is Jennifer Jason Lee as Tra La La in Last Exit to Brooklyn. Interesting. Did you just add that one in? No. Oh, yeah. she got bumped from three. Okay. My number three is Meg Ryan in Joe versus the Volcano because I'm never going to get a chance to talk about A, Meg Ryan again, or B, Joe versus the Volcano on this podcast. So I loved Meg in this and it takes me back to a time before she was vilified and all the stories about her being a, a complete jerk to people came out. I think Meg Ryan's best performance is When a Man Loves a Woman. Yeah, I think there's a long history of playing drunks in film all the way back to Ray Milan in The Lost Weekend. Doesn't mean that she wasn't extraordinarily good at it. Much right. better than your girl Sandra Bullock in 28 Days Later. You mean 28 Days? Or are you talking yeah. about 28 Days Slash Later where she's trying to overcome alcoholism while there's a zombie outbreak? <laughs> Whatever. 28 Days. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> All right. My number three is Susan Sarandon, White Palace. I put that at my number two. All right. Well, then fast forward. My number two is Helen Mirren. And she would have been my number one if she inhaled her cigarette. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which means Fuck me. My number one is Helen Mirren, which means your number one is fucking Demi Moore. I love it. Okay. I love it. But I was, I was very moved by this movie. I won't. Uh, I already said that. I cried when I rewatched it the other day. So Ghost. Oh, yeah. Oh, Hell yeah. yeah, man. And you know what? The pottery scene, not as cheesy as I remembered it. Oh, it's really difficult to watch. <laughs> Is it? Well, it be just became so parodied that, it, you know, it's like any movie where it's like, oh, ha, 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 this has been overdone. Like watching The Matrix now is just like, uh, there must be a word for that in German or something where you're like eye rolling to something that was once innovative and culturally significant <laughs> and is now just like, ugh. Like listening to the first couple Beatles albums, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So looking at the points, Susan Sarandon is in second. And then Helen Mirren for the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover at number one. So well-deserved. And I'm actually kind of happy that Sarandon got second. And I would be fine with putting Demi in third, quite frankly. I think she's better than Meg Ryan is now that I'm thinking about it. So Meg you Ryan know how many times was my selfish during pick. Behind the scenes and whatnot, we called each other fucking assholes and, you know, pissed each other I off through text. I ever called you that. I mean, I called you that in my mind. I don't hate the fact whether it's Demi in third or if it's Meg Ryan in third. I think this is a wonderful list and I'm glad that you are my friend and we came up with it. Well, that's very nice. That's a nice way to end it. So we're going to take Meryl Streep's nomination away for Postcards from the Edge. Sorry, Miss Streep. And we're going to give it to Helen Mirren for her performance in The Cook, The Wife, The Thief. The Cook, The Thief, The the the, the Buffalo. Helen Mirren as Georgina in The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Excellent. Are we going to do another one of these Streep episodes this season? Or are we just going to going to wait? Not this season. Not this season. All right. So we're going to let everybody jump on board. The next one that we get to watch, which I have never watched, which I not terribly looking forward to is the bridges of madison county mm, i remember when that came out that was a big old deal have you seen it it was on hbo if i watched it i have no memory of it i can see what she was wearing in the film and i can see eastwood with his camera i can see bridges and i can see what i assume is madison county but we're about to watch some clint eastwood meryl streep sex that's all i know god i hope not well we won't have to worry about that movie for some time and neither will our listeners have to worry about uh, us talking about Meryl Streep again for for about a year. So thanks for listening today. We'll see you next time. I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Bro and Lee will return when they set out to investigate all of the music that won the Oscar for Best Song. That's almost 90 years worth of Academy Award winning music, but don't worry, we won't discuss them all. We're just going to determine which ones were the best and which ones made no sense. In the meantime, check us out on Instagram at Take on the Academy. Find us on Facebook, send notes to takeontheacademy at gmail.com, and if you're feeling froggy, You could leap and even rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Whether you do or don't, we appreciate you listening to us and look forward to arguing with you. That's if you write us, which I dare you. I dare you to write us. You won't, will you? Will you? Wussy. There, I said it. Write us. Wussy. You're a wussy. Your mom writes us. This is Lee, by the way. Ta-ta!